I thought you were going to say I have two adorable daughters, but <laughs> I do. I was like, well, I don't really refer to them as adorable. Uh, hey, good morning. So I don't really like to talk about sin. In fact, I don't want to talk about sin so much that I really wrestled with the Lord on this message and asked for all kinds of other creative ways to teach through Jonah too. And every idea I came up with and tried to put structure around just unraveled in front of me. Because Jonah too is all about Jonah's sin. It's all about the downward spiral that he finds himself in because of his sin and the chaos that it creates in his life and in the life of those around him. And isn't that what sin does? It causes chaos in our lives and in the lives of others. But sin is really sneaky because it starts with this lure to us, telling us that it's going to make us feel better, it's gonna fix a problem, it's gonna give us something that we really want. Now don't get me wrong, sin does sometimes give us what we want, at least temporarily, but it never really lasts and the consequences always seem to. And left unchecked, our sin has a way of growing and multiplying. And then it becomes something like what Jonah experienced where it feels consuming and like it's gonna pull us under. So I know I'm not alone. I know you don't wanna talk about sin either. And yet, that's where we find ourselves this morning and it's something I know we really need to do because we have all found ourselves in places where we've said, I just can't believe I'm here. I just can't believe I did that. And we may even be in those places now. And even if we aren't, I think an honest assessment of who we are says that we are just a few bad choices away from being there. So we get to talk about sin today. The big idea, I know, woohoo! The big idea that Jonah is gonna teach us is take hold of sin or it will take hold of you. Or, as John Owen, who's a 17th century theologian said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. So let's turn to Jonah 2. We'll have the verses on the screen, of course, but we're gonna be pretty much camped out in Jonah 2 today. Jonah 2 is written as a psalm. And just like any psalm, it's a poetic expression of truths. Jonah writes the entire psalm in the belly of the fish. He tells us that in Jonah 2.1. He says, from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, and then he writes the psalm. However, he's writing about before he went into the fish. He's writing about even looking forward to coming out of the fish. And so it's a little bit pieced together. And so I'm going to take it a little bit out of order in some places to kind of piece this psalm together for us this morning. But there's two truths that I think God wants us to take away from Jonah's experience and this psalm. And the first is that God's discipline leads to deliverance but we always have a choice. We have a choice how we will respond to his discipline. Are we gonna let it be that loving grace that pulls us back toward him? Are we gonna resist and continue in the storm that we've stirred up because of our sin? The second 
point is that God is always ready to pull us out of the pit, always. No matter how far you feel like you have fallen into the pit, he is ready to pull you out of it when you are ready to be pulled out. So that's where we're headed. Let's talk about the first thing that I think God wants to teach us, and that is God's discipline leads to deliverance, but we always have a choice. So we saw in chapter one that Jonah deliberately and willfully turned away from God's calling to go to Nineveh. In fact, he ran the other direction. And God pursued him, didn't he? He pursued him with a storm. And this storm was God's discipline to Jonah, his loving discipline to him. It was not God's punishment to Jonah. And there's a really important distinction we need to make between punishment and discipline. So let's talk about those two words. Punishment, I would just summarize it as saying it's backward looking. So it is about the offense. It is about paying for what you have done. It is about actually making the offended party feel better because they're getting some sort of payment back for what has happened. It doesn't care how you move forward. It just cares that you pay for what you have done. Discipline though is forward looking. It's about us and who we're becoming. It's about training us to make different decisions as we move into the future. So here's the thing that you need to know about our God. And I mean, you need to know this about your God. Our God is not a punishing God. Our God is a disciplining God. And so if you find yourself in a storm, you can be certain of one thing. It is not to punish you. It may be for your discipline. When my girls were little, we did a lot of disciplining in our house. They would do something wrong and they would get a consequence, maybe go to your room or have a timeout. And when my heart was in the right place, I would coach them and train them, hey, here's why you got a timeout. Here's, here's what you can do differently in the future. And I'm doing this because I want you to be better. See, our whole goal with disciplining our children was that they would become productive citizens in society, that they would actually be able to move out of our house someday and take care of themselves. And so we disciplined them for their good. But on my less good days, I would still send them to their room or give them a timeout, but my heart was not in the right place. I was punishing them. I just wanted you to feel some pain for what you were doing to me. <laughs> And that's the problem I think for us with discipline and punishment is they often can look exactly the same to us. They can feel even the same to us sometimes because we don't get it right. And I think we try to impose our imperfect way of doing that onto God. We need to remember that our God is a perfect parent. He's so much better at parenting than I was. <laughs> And so he doesn't ever punish us. He's not trying to just make us pay him back. Well, he's already paid it all anyway. The other thing about storms in our life though is sometimes they're not storms that we have stirred up. So sometimes storms are really God's discipline for us because we have stirred up a storm because of our sin, right? But sometimes, 
We get caught in the current of someone else's storm, like the sailors did. And then sometimes we just find ourselves in a storm because we live in a sinful and broken world. So we're not talking about those kinds of storms that aren't of our own making, while God can certainly use those to lead us to maturity. What we're gonna talk about today are the storms that we stir up because of our sin and how God uses those to discipline us. So Hebrews exhorts us for how to respond to God's discipline this way. It says, my dear children, don't shrug off God's discipline, but don't be crushed by it either. It's the child he loves that he disciplines. The child he embraces, he also corrects. God is treating you as dear children. The trouble you're in isn't punishment, it's training. God is doing what is best for us, training us to live God's holy best. At the time, discipline isn't much fun. Is it ever? It always feels like it's going against the grain. Later, of course, it pays off handsomely for it's the well-trained who find themselves mature in their relationship with God. So know this for certain. If you find yourself in a place where you are being disciplined, it is for your deliverance to deliver you from the mess that you have found yourself in and to lead you into maturity. And that's exactly what happens to Jonah. Jonah finds himself in this storm that he has stirred up on his own. In fact, he knows he stirred it up. Recall back in Jonah 1.12, he's telling the sailors what to do. He says, pick me up and throw me into the sea and it will become calm. I know it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. And so they do. And then later Jonah acknowledges that it's not even the sailor's fault. They physically threw him into the water, but it was really God who hurled him into the sea. He says in Jonah 2, 3, you hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the sea. So Jonah finds himself in the storm and he gets to make a choice for how he's gonna respond. And I think his choices are kind of interesting. This is the first choice we see him make. He chooses to acknowledge that it is his fault. And I think he actually does something kind of admirable at this point, because he knows the storm he has created is causing chaos in the life of other people as well. And so he says, throw me away, get me far away from you, and the storm will still for you. And I believe it did. And yet Jonah continued on in the storm. But where his decision, his choice lacked in every way is the fact that he continued to run from God. He continued to resist, kind of digging his feet in, so to speak, and running the other way from God, saying, yeah, it's my fault, but I am still gonna figure out how to get out of this mess. And so he winds up in the sea. I'm thinking there must have been an easier way, Jonah, but he is a pretty stubborn guy. <laughs> and so he continues on with this downward spiral of these consequences and discipline. 
He says this in Jonah 2, 3, and 4, you hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the sea, and the currents swirled around me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. See, Jonah finds himself now in these rough seas tossed about. I almost imagine it's like he, he comes up for a quick sip of air and then he gets pulled under and he, he finds his way up and he gets pulled under again. And he's thinking, you know what? I'm, I'm a really strong swimmer. I still think I can get out of this storm. And so while he senses the distance that he has created between him and God, and he says, I have been banished from your sight. Actually, he has banished himself from God's sight. He says, I will look again to your holy temple. And to me, it's just like he's going, yeah, I know God. I know, I see you, but I will not respond. He looks, but he does nothing. He knows he's in this torrent, but he is still incredibly self-sufficient and he thinks there is a way out. And so the spiral continues downward. And he says this in verses five and six, the engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountain I sank down, the earth beneath barred me in forever. He's describing this near death drowning experience. When he says the earth is gonna bar him in, he's, he feels like it's gonna hold him in jail, it's gonna consume him. He is at the bottom and he is without options. His self-sufficiency wasn't very sufficient, was it? I have certain that Jonah had no idea that he would wind up on the bottom of the sea when he got on board that ship headed toward Tarshish. And that's the great deception of sin, isn't it? It starts small and it convinces us it's not that big of a deal. See, if you get on this ship, it's gonna take you exactly where you want to go. The enemy is sneaky and he is deceptive and he knows all the tricks for getting us to minimize and downplay obedience to God. I have told myself this lie so many times. My sin isn't that bad. I'm not that bad. I mean, I'm not breaking any laws. I mean, not any big ones anyway. I've never embezzled money from the church. I haven't murdered anyone. I haven't cheated on my spouse. I'm not that bad. But I'm not listening to Jesus. Because taking money doesn't just happen by stealing. It happens by being stingy and withholding what should be given. Murder isn't just with my hands, but it starts in my heart when I think hateful things about people. And adultery doesn't just happen with my body, but it starts when I start to give anyone loyalty above my spouse. And I cross these little lines and I wander into these sinful places. It starts small, but left unchecked, it just grows. And Jonah described the seaweed wrapping around his head. I have felt that these tentacles of sin that feel like they are just coming up to grab you, wrap around you, and pull you under. See, that's what happens with sin if we leave it unchecked. If we don't take hold of sin, it will take hold of us. 
And we take hold of sin by bringing it into the light. The enemy loves to live in the dark places and in the shadows, but God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Nothing good grows in the dark, nothing. When we first moved to Texas, my oldest daughter Taylor was two years old and for some reason she just kept getting sick. Like over and over again, we took her to doctors and and we took her to the allergist and we could not figure out what she was going on with her. And then one day, it was one of those huge rainstorms where just like tons of water was coming down and I was in my bare feet and I was cleaning up something in her room and I walked over to the corner and it was wet. And I was like, what's happened? So I'm investigating and I'm now down on my knees and I keep going further and further into the corner and it's wetter and wetter. And finally I get up enough guts and I just pull back the carpet and mold is everywhere. It is in the carpet, it is in the padding and we kept doing research and it was in the walls. There was a leak in our roof and these mold spores were growing hidden away in the dark corner. We had no idea and they were making her sick. And isn't that just the way it is with sin? See, we tuck it away in these dark corners and we think, no one will see it if I put it over here. And yet, in those little dark places, that's where it starts to grow and multiply. And it is making us sick and it will start to make those around us sick. We cannot hide it forever. Numbers 23, or 32, 23 tells us that our sin will be found out. And that is not a threat. That is just reality. And we aren't really hiding it anyway, are we? I mean, people around us may not know the full extent of what's going on, but God does. He sees it. He sees all the things that we try to hide in the corners. 1 Corinthians 4, 5 says that God will bring it to light. He will bring to light what has been hidden in the darkness. Nothing good grows in the dark. And bringing it to light stops sin's growth. There are so many stories, and maybe you even have your own, of a time when you finally confessed the truth. What was really going on, maybe to a trusted friend or a pastor or a counselor, And all of a sudden, those tentacles that felt like they had such a firm grip on us started to loosen because we brought it into the light. And sin cannot handle the light. James tells us that this is exactly what will happen when we confess our sin. He says, confess your sin to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. See, when we bring it into the light, we invite trusted brothers and sisters to pray for us, we find healing. And there are two lessons for us in this. And the first is, if you are receiving the confessing, do not minimize it, do not downplay it, do not try to fix it, get on your knees and pray. Because God says it's the prayer of a righteous person that is powerful and effective. We fight for them in prayer. God longs for us to pray those prayers. But the second truth is we need to be confessors. We need to bring it in to the light. We need to pull back the carpet all the way to the corner. I've heard it said that we need to tell the last 2%. 
This last 2%, you know that, that shameful little part of it that you don't really want to share? I mean, it's hard enough to say that you're attracted to your married coworker, but to confess that you've been texting is a whole other thing. Or to confess that you've been struggling with food and the hold it has on you, but to confess that you've been sneaking into the kitchen and eating when nobody can see you and shoving the evidence deep down in the trash feels very different. Or maybe it's that you've been frustrated with your kids lately, said a few things you shouldn't have, versus I lost it. And I yelled and I screamed and my little girl looked up to me and her eyes were wide and she was scared of me. That feels very different. I'm struggling with how much I've been drinking versus I'm drinking alone. I'm just trying to get through the days now. It feels like it just keeps growing and growing. What is the 2% that you want to hold back? Because those are the little mold spores that you are leaving. It's the foothold that we are giving the enemy because if we don't take hold of sin, it will take hold of us. And bringing it into the light brings healing, and healing brings freedom. And if we do this early, then we won't find ourselves in the same pit that Jonah found himself in. So Jonah finds himself at the end of himself. He is stripped of his own self-sufficiency and that's when he finally cries out to God. He says in 2.7, when my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. See, he remembers God at this point. He remembers who he is and I'm guessing that Jonah started to remember the fact that he had been called as a prophet and he had accepted that call he probably started to remember God's faithfulness to him and how he had seen him through other things. And so in that moment, he offers up this weak and, fee and feeble prayer that rises to the holy temple. And that is when God reaches down to pull him out of the pit, when he finally surrenders. This is when he's hit the bottom. And he says it this way in Jonah 2.2, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. In the deep, from deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help. Now we can't see it in the English translation, but this second word called is this desperate cry. He's screaming to God for help. And you listen to my cry. And Jonah 2.6 adds, you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When Jonah was ready, God was ready to bring him out of the pit. And there may be a mess waiting for us when we climb out of that pit. Lasting consequences. But with God, we can find restoration and we can begin the process of rebuilding what has been broken. I want to introduce you to a young woman named Chelsea. She's actually one of my daughter's best friends. They met on the other side of Chelsea's rock bottom, but I want you to hear this very short piece of her story because God was always ready to pull her from the pit that she found herself in when she finally called out to him in her distress. 
So let's listen. I took my first drink when I was about 15. It made me feel like I fit in, like I didn't have to try so hard to fit in because growing up I always, uh, you know, would form into whoever I needed to be, I guess, to fit in with people or to be liked by people. So when I started drinking, it kind of felt like I could be myself. Like for the first time, it was like almost freeing. Like I was able to be myself and not care about what other people thought. I got into meth when I was 17, which then escalated into, um, I started doing prescription pain pills to kind of counteract the meth. Like it was kind of a back and forth until I was just fully addicted to both of them. I was a person that I did not like. You know, I stole from my family. I stole from anyone that I could. Lied, I cheated. I, you know, I just wasn't a good person. I was someone that I did not like and I did not want to be, but I didn't know how to not be that person at this point. So the day I guess I realized I'd hit my rock bottom when I'm sitting in my car, I kind of just sent up like a little foxhole prayer because at this time, you know, I didn't have a relationship with God. I need help, but I don't know how to get it. If you're there, like give me, like, give me a sign, like I need something. That very same day, my mom called me. First thing she says to me is, I know everything. Like I know what you've been going through. So I love her story because isn't that the way sin starts? It actually promised her, I'm gonna make you feel better. You're actually gonna feel free. She had no idea that she was actually gonna become an addict. And when she finally sent up that prayer, God was ready to deliver her. And her deliverance came in the form of her mom calling, saying, I know what's going on. And then, I'm inviting her and bringing her into a rehab program. But she still had a choice. She could have told her mom, no, you have no idea. That's not true. She could have resisted rehab, but she didn't. She made a courageous step forward toward healing. And it wasn't easy. She wanted to leave rehab so many times. Climbing up out of that pit was very hard. But she kept choosing to say yes to God and no to sin. And with the help of the people around her, she found her way back to solid ground. And now she works for this amazing ministry in Oklahoma called Hope is Alive. And she is helping other people come out of that same pit she found herself in. She is helping other people find healing and find freedom. God delivered her through the phone call. She had a choice to accept it. And God delivered Jonah through the fish. Says it this way in Jonah 1.17, now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. God's discipline leads to deliverance if we choose to accept it. There's one last thing I want you to know about Jonah's journey that I think is important for us. Jonah had not fully arrived. When he sent up this prayer from the bottom of the pit, it was a weak prayer. And he had not fully repented and he had not fully turned around. And he finishes the psalm this way. He says, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them, but I with shouts of grateful praise will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. 
It's worth noting that in verse eight, he says, those who cling to worthless idols, he does not seem to be including himself. In verse nine, he says, but I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. See, Jonah had not fully arrived. He didn't realize that he was also clinging to worthless idols. And he didn't realize that he needed God's grace and mercy just as much as the wicked Ninevites did. He had not fully arrived, and yet God took him where he was. And doesn't that encourage us? We just have to be willing to take the next step. And with that commitment, the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. I can only imagine how hard those first few steps were for him. Also being covered in vomit sounds disgusting. (laughs) but he did it. So where are you? Are you in the pit? Wondering how you're going to get out? Cry out to God, ask him to deliver you, and then accept his deliverance. Confess it to a trusted sister and let them pray for you. There will be healing. Or maybe you've been flirting with getting on that ship to Tarshish. What is that last 2% that you're holding back? Confess it, bring it into the light. Don't wind up in the same pit that Jonah wound up in. There is always a way out. No matter where we are on this journey, there is always a way out. We always have a choice. So tomorrow begins the Lenten journey, which is 40 days of journeying to the cross, 40 days journeying to Easter. There is no better time to do this deep soul work of repentance and restoration, to ask the Lord, what do you need me to confess? Where do you need me to move more towards you? See, it's on that cross that Jesus took all of those sins. He took the sins that threw us into the pit. He took the sins that we just withheld that last 2% of. He takes all of them, he takes those sins, he takes the shame of those sins, and he pays for it finally and fully on the cross, and he offers us freedom and restoration. So there is no better time for us to do this work than the season that we're entering into. So I wanna give us a moment to just pray right now and ask the Lord how he wants us to respond. Do we need to cry out to him? Do we need to confess? So let's ask him right now what he has for us. Lord Jesus, we, we know that we are all in different places on this journey. And we are so grateful that there is always a way out. And so Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you that you pursue us 
through your loving discipline, always to lead us back to you. So Lord, go before us, and if we need to be bold and brave today, would you help us to be bold and brave to confess? And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.